I'm good. I am good. I can hear myself. But so can everybody else. Boy, what a difference a week makes. I'll wait for Paul, or I'll give him a minute or two. Boy, it's nice to sleep through the night and not have my vitals taken or blood taken or pills given. None. I first got in there, the guy next to me was named Chuck, too. So every time they came in and said something to Chuck, we both looked. They moved him. <sighs> well, we're going to try and finish up Lesson 8 today. But I've got some things that I added to it, so I don't know that we will or not. Hey. Casting out demons? Okay, well, maybe I'll skip a little bit more over it, but I think I added some stuff in there that you probably might not have had. Okay, so last week you did talk about casting out demons. And all three is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Mark probably has the least kind of information because you don't know why he started what he did. You just kind of see that he went through. If you look at the, the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying he's possessed by Beelzebub. But you really don't know what he did in Mark. But Luke... Oh, as he was casting out a demon, and it was mute, so it made the man where he couldn't talk. So you have a little bit more information. But then you get the others that it says, he's cast out by Beelzebub. It was the rulers in the previous one that had said that. And when you get to Matthew, you see a little bit more information, which kind of makes it important to look at all three Gospels, or four Gospels, if they parallel, in order to figure out what's going on. Here was a demon-possessed man. He was blind and mute. So there's a little bit more information in Matthew. He healed him. The mute now spoke and saw. So he healed his blindness and he healed his mute. The crowds were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? In other words, can this be just a man? And then the Pharisees said what they did. So they made, they made the accusation. So that kind of ties up those three verses there. And did you go through Matthew 17, also, uh, 17, uh, 17 14 through 18? Okay. This, these I pulled out here were indications of what demons did and people who were um, suffering because of demons. So the Pharisees, with the point that they make to say, well, he does this because of Beelzebub. What was their consideration for the man who was blind? And mute. 
None. Okay. What kind of a life was it like? Look at the lunatic here. There's a lunatic, very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Okay. Did he just fall? Did he just fall into the fire or just fall into the water? What did the demon do? Threw him in the fire, threw him in the water, took, took control over his body. Can you imagine, you're sitting there, you can see everything that's going on, you can hear everything's going on, but you can't control your body. You can't control what you say or anything. You see all this is going on, but you can't control a thing. You see all the damage doing your body. Yeah. Couldn't you see this today, like in a downtown big city or something? You're just walking down the sidewalk, and all of a sudden you're throwing you're throwing in front of a truck or a car, or just, you know, one time after another. Yeah. 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 It, 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 something like that could happen. You're thrown off of a second story, or something like that. In in our environment of things like that, and you have no control. So here's where Jesus rebuked him, and he, and he took it out. He did good. It was a good work. Here's another one. This is an Acts. This wasn't Jesus who threw it out. Uh, this is Paul. But this is where another woman who was a slave girl, spirit of divination. In other words, she could tell the future. Okay? That spirit of divination, it was a demon. Okay? It wasn't from God. And it was annoying. <laughs> it followed Paul all around and said... These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation over and over and over and over. She can control it. And eventually he gets to the point, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And at that very moment, he came out. She was back to herself. She was back in her right mind. Do you remember how the people responded? That owned her? She was a slave girl. Huh? They were, they were angry. Oh, they were furious. There was their big source of revenue, and it just gone. So you can see, they, those people, even then, reacted the same way the Pharisees did with Christ, is to say, oh, you did something good, but you're affecting our revenue. You're affecting our power. In Mark... <clears throat> Here he does his, his uh, response to them saying it's in Beelzebub. And I know you went over this last week too. But it's the argument that says, how can someone who's trying to promote themselves fight against themselves? Lincoln, I think, used it in the Gettysburg Address. He says, a house divided against itself it cannot stand. This is where he got it from. Okay. Here he's talking about a strong man's house, plunder and property, unless he finds a strong man. Who's the strong man that he's talking about here? Who's the man that's going to go in there and plunder it? And what's the house? Did you talk about this last week? You did, okay. So you talked about it last week. The house is the man's body. The plunderer is the demon. The strong man who binds the man has to be God, has to be Christ. In Matthew, this is another one, another one, another discussion you had about this last week. A house divided against itself cannot stand. It more or less says the same thing. 
Luke, he goes into more detail. So we're in the first part of it. Matthew goes into more detail. In this latter part of it, Luke goes into more detail. Then there's a part in 24 through 26, and I'm just going to touch on it, and I'm going to come back to it later on in the lesson. When unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it, founds, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, even more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. What? Now Christ is talking about this. What hasn't happened yet? Think about that. What hasn't happened yet that he's talking about right now? And I'm going to come back to it. But let's talk about the Spirit. Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven, the sons of man, whatever blasphemy they, but whoever shall blaspheme against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal, eternal sin. So what's he saying there? I know you talked about this, right? Doug, you talked about this? Yes. Okay. What's he saying, since you talked about it? These are short memories. How about in Matthew? He says the same thing. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What's the age to come? All right. Right. Okay. So he's talking about then, prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. And he's talking about after his death, burial, and resurrection. And the significance is, it's more significant. It's significant, but I think it's more significant to us after his death, burial, and resurrection. So let's look at what he said he was going to go do. Because this is, this is very early in his ministry. He talks about sinning against the Holy Spirit. But in Matthew, in 14 and I think 15 here, he talks about who he's sending. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So he's talking to the disciples right now. But it's a broader explanation that we get into a little bit later. And then in 15, he kind of punctuates the end of the discussion he has with the disciples. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And he will testify also because you have been with me from the beginning. How is he going to testify? Excuse me? With the word? The word of truth? Certainly their writings that they're going to do, although the person who's going to write most of the books in the New Testament isn't in this group right now, uh, are going to give a remembrance of what they need to say because of the Holy Spirit. What other testimony would he have? 
What were the apostles able to do? Not say, do. Not demons, too. Cure the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead, speak in tongues. All those things they were able to do. All those were testimonies. They were speaking was the truth. So, in Acts 2.38, it's where Peter opens up and people really begin to understand what he meant. Because up until this point, nobody understood what he said. Everybody knows about this one. Peter's just given his speech to say, here's what we've gone all the way through, through the prophets and all the people that were sent, and like that. And then they finally sent the Son of God and you killed him. They said, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you think I underlined that two-lettered word? The smaller the word, the more controversial it is. Okay, there's, there's an explanation. It's not the one I was looking for, but that's, there's an explanation. That's the way Paul answers all the questions back there, too. He usually says, well, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> Is there any controversy associated with this one? Even within the church? It's not as big. I haven't seen it as much as I did see it 30 years ago. It becomes, it becomes a question of, do you receive the the gift of the Holy Spirit, or do you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. If the, the word, word was, was from there, you would receive a gift from the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues, healing, things like that. But it says of. Of the Holy Spirit. That's the gift. He's the gift. Not a gift from him. He's the gift. But there's been a lot of controversy. 30 years ago, it was being taught to say, well, really that gift of the Holy Spirit, which is a gift from the Holy Spirit, is the Word. You know what? I had the Word before I was baptized. I didn't have the Holy Spirit before I was baptized. In Romans, a lot of time talking about what was done. What, what the Spirit does. And he, and he compares the two because he's comparing what the Spirit does and he's comparing what the law does. And the law condemns and this, if you will, rejuvenates. So let's, let me read through this. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So it's capitalized here. The writer said, this is the Holy Spirit he's talking about. For the mindset on flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and that's what Peter was talking about it, was you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive, and the Spirit is lowercase there, which means your spirit. Your spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. There's a lot of things that the Spirit does. Christ described him in Matthew as a helper, right? But what does it say it does here? What does it say the Spirit does for us in this passage in Romans? Gives us life. The, compare, the, the parallel is to who pulled Christ out of the pit? Out of, out of where he went to? Who pulled him out of the pit? The Holy Spirit. He couldn't be held there. Why? He had the sin of the world. Why couldn't he be held there? Somebody said something. He was sinless. He wasn't guilty of any of those sins. He just brought them with him. So he could be held because he wasn't guilty of any of those sins. And the Spirit pulled him out, up into heaven. So what does the Spirit do for us? How do they work together? How does Christ and the Spirit work together? What justifies the Spirit coming into your body? The blood of Christ. Isn't it, isn't it, isn't the justification for him coming into you the sacrifice that Christ made? And what happens when you sin against the Holy Spirit? How is your spirit going to get renewed if he's gone? Isn't that the sin that's an eternal sin? People who deny the Holy Spirit put themselves in tremendous jeopardy. We read over that passage in Matthew, Mark, and Luke about what he says about it. But I'm trying to put it together to say the gravity of the situation, what Christ described. If you understand how the Spirit and Christ work together to provide us salvation, Christ says, you, you say something against me, I'll forgive you. you but the Spirit? He won't. And Peter kind of talks about people who've done that, who've shut the Spirit out. And he's talking about people that are false prophets, but people who are listening, people who are pursuing after that. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Promising them freedom while they themselves are... For what 
A man is overcome by this, he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of this world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to not, to not have known the way of righteousness, and having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed to the, on, on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. So this is someone who has had Christ and has returned back to the world. Kind of have the parable of the, of the sower, kind of brings to mind was the seeds that fall in, they grow real fast, heat gets to them, they get burned up. That's what Peter's talking about. You can shut the spirit out. You can turn back to the way the life was. But you won't have salvation. Sign seekers and an enthusiast reproved. This is in Luke. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. And he's talking about a sign. What's he been doing up until this point? Healing people. Casting out demons. I mean, he just went through the part where they said he does it because of Beelzebub. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevehs, so will the Son of Man to be to this generation. So what's he alluding to there? What's Christ alluding to this? There. The death, burial, and resurrection. How long was Jonah in the whale? Uh, the, nope, the, the big, big fish. fish. The whale. Three days. <laughs> Three days. And how long is Christ going to be in the earth? Three days. Three days. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. What is greater than Solomon that's there? Christ. The wisdom that Solomon spoke was wisdom. Wisest man ever. But what Christ says eclipses what Solomon said. The men of Nineveh will stand up with, at, with, up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So he's doing a comparison, but this is really, really early in his ministry. What he's talking about, they're going, huh? They didn't understand it at this point. Again, he expands it a little bit and he gives a little more information here as far as what Matthew recorded some of the scribes and the pharisees, teacher, we want to see a sign for you. So you can see who wants to see the sign. Do they really want to see a sign? We want to see a show. Okay? So you understand why Christ's response is what it is. In, in, uh, in Luke, it just kind of starts out, he's he talking about, well, you want to see a sign. Well, you find out in Matthew, who wants to see the sign? Well, they just want to see a show. Okay? Just do a trick for us. You know, do a magic trick for us. Show us something cool. But he answered to this, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Okay, so he, he's, he's winding up. He says, first of all, 
You guys are a bunch of corrupt, evil guys anyhow. I know what you're asking this for. I know where you're coming from. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, big fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he makes it more specific here as far as what Matthew recorded. No, granted, Luke wasn't there. He was inspired. And the Spirit inspired him, and he wrote down what he wanted to. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So he goes into a lot more detail, goes into less detail about the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. Sheba was, queen Sheba was queen of the south. Um, she was of the Ptolemies in the south. And, and here again, then I go back to Luke, where it kind of keeps the same thought where he's talking about no one after lighting a lamp puts a lamp under a cellar, nor under a basket, nor on a lamp but on a lampstand, so that you, the, who, may, who enter may see the light. The eye is a lamp under your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is also full of darkness. Then watch out that the light in you is not darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illuminated, when, as when the lamp illuminates you with its rays. Remember, in Matthew, you know who he's talking to. He's talking to the leadership. He's not talking to the disciples. They're here. They're hearing it. But he's addressing what they asked as far as the leadership. They want to see a sign. They want to see a show. And here he goes on to talk about the light. You think you've got the light in you. But you don't. You've got the darkness. The people who have true lights and a clear eye can see the truth. And he's contrasting the people that are looking for a way back to God. They can hear what the Pharisees say. They can hear what Christ says. Those who can see clearly and see the light. And he's saying, I'm a lot different than you. And these people can see that I'm the light and you're the darkness. Now I've come back to this one, but it was in Luke. I've come back to it in Matthew. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in, and they live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Who's the evil generation? The leadership. Okay. They just made an accusation to him. You're demon-possessed. He just turned it around. He said, I'm not. But you are. Everything's evil about what you do. Now, what's, if, if it's physically where somebody's cast out as a demon, and it's swept and it's kept, in other words, the home being the person's body, What's unique about the situation here? Can demons, is, is there any control, is there any restraint on a demon now? 
at that point, at that point in time? No. No. Only the power of God through Christ and then through the apostles would the demons be cast out. But if you go to Revelation, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the keys of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him in the abyss and shut it, sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So how did he get chained? How did he get bound? What was the ultimate showdown that he lost? Who filled Judas's heart to do what he did? Satan did. Did Satan think he thought he won? They're going to kill him. I'm going to win. And he lost. When Christ came and went down below and couldn't be held, Satan lost. When he resurrected, Satan lost. You hear, any, you hear stories where people are demon-possessed. Are people really demon-possessed today? Do you see any of the stuff, you know, a little bit is you might have a demon today, throw you off the second story, throw you in front of a train, throw you into a burning house, throw you in molten lava. I don't have any of that today, do we? They had it all over the place. In the time Christ came, this is my personal belief. Christ constrained Satan's power and the demons that follow. They're still evil in the world. But it's the men, hearts of men. It's their own fleshly desires that Paul talked about in Romans. It's not because they can't control it. Because with a demon, you can't control it. They control it. They just want to do it. So the difference here that Christ is talking about, where one demon comes back with seven more, was true up until the time he was resurrected, my opinion. Yeah? You see stuff like, I mean, with the Pharisees, I mean, they already had the hard hearts and stuff, but he, he, he's part of them. But like I say, Judas is a good example of that. The extent that Satan could go, this is one of the apostles. This is one of the people that Jesus loved and loved Jesus. If he could get into Satan, uh, Judas, he could do it, you know, like I said, if it wasn't bound today, it could be here, it could be the, the little guy standing up front bringing the gospel, it could be the elders, it could be anybody, anytime, with no restraint on who those people are. Yep. Yep. Told you I'd come back to that. So, Christ's definition family. Easy peasy stuff. In Luke, and Matthew and Mark, it's there. But it kind of, what I kind of do here is, is I'm trying to reinforce 
look at all three Gospels when you look at some of these stories because it builds up. There's more information. In Luke, his mother and brothers came to him and they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. It was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are outstanding outside wishing to see you. But he answered to them and said, my mother and brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. So it's pretty short. Mark, it's a little bit more expanded. The, then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. More, they're, they're a little bit more forceful. crowd was sitting around him, and they said, to Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. So it's the same thing. Answering, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. So he's looking at those. He says, you're my mother. You're my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, my sister, and my mother. So here he's saying there's a physical family, but what's more important is the spiritual family. And he's looking around to those people that are there, because normally, what should he have done? These were just people. They were listening to him. He was a teacher, right? He changed the relationship. He said, the relationship isn't teacher-student. The relationship is brothers and sisters in Christ. A different relationship. And in Matthew, while he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mothers and brothers were standing outside to speak to him. So this is in the discussion while he was having with them. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered him, the one who was telling him and said, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands to the disciples. So it's a little bit more. He says, you, all of you here. Behold, my mother and my brothers. So this may have given a little bit of gasp, possibly to the, the crowd that said, we didn't understand that. We didn't understand what relationship we were actually in with you. We thought it was teacher-student. So you kind of get where he's defining family. He's defining spiritually. Paul talks about it in at least one of his books where we're all sons of Abraham, which the Jews would have gone, what? We're sons of Abraham spiritually. In the same spiritual way, Abraham was part of the family of God. We're part of the family of God because of that spiritual relationship we have with God. So we are sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham in that respect. Christ was the... <clears throat> this makes him happy, right? Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked to have him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. So did he have dirty hands? It's a loaded question. Wanda was going, no. Well, he probably may have rinsed his hands off, something like that, but what were they looking for? Do it right, okay? You've got to wash your hands. You've got to hold them up. You've got to let the water run down and drip off your elbows and everything like that. You have to do it the right way. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, clean on the outside of the cup and of the platter, 
but inside you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. So they invited him for lunch. What do you have for lunch? He had the Pharisees for lunch. <laughs> okay? He sat down with them, and man, he just lit into them. Again, but woe to you Pharisees, for you pay a tithe of mint and rue, which is little mints, a little uh, um, herbs, and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and love of God. Now, where is it they're disregarding the justice and love of God? Most evident. He's up in Galilee. What's he going to do? Somewhere around April. Going to go Passover. Where is he going to go do that? Jerusalem. What's he going to do when he goes down there? He's going to turn the tables over with the money changers. He's going to fashion a rope into a whip, and he's going to run them out of there. So he knows what's going on. He's been going down to Jerusalem his whole life, except the time he was in Egypt, every year. And he was only in Egypt two, three years. So he's been going down there. He's seen this all along going on, where they turned his father's house into a den of robbers. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are a concealed tombs, like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. So he's still having lunch, Pharisee lunch, okay? He's still telling them all the things they've done wrong. One of the lawyers said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. What's the lawyer doing? He's whining. You hurt our feelings. We have that thing we do too. But he said, woe to the lawyers as well. So the lawyer spoke up, and he probably should have kept his mouth shut. For you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and prove the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. So what's he calling them? One word. Christ used it a lot to describe them. Hypocrites. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You look godly. You really will all the all the great stuff where people just elevate you and stuff like that. You know, you get the chief seats and everything like that. You get the fantastic greetings when we come into the marketplace. You love all that stuff. Well, you know what? You're a hypocrite. Because you're not godly at all. 
He had just talked about it in that area where he talked, that I talked about earlier where he said, those who have a clear eye can see, but those who don't, there's darkness. He was already talking about the Pharisees then. He's just a little bit more on point here when he's talking to them. We're sitting down with them where they asked him for a meal. So he's going through and saying, this is everything that's wrong. For this reason, also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute. So that the blood of all the prophets, shed since the foundation of the world, may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who is killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I will tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. What's the entering to? What are they hindering? What do the people want? A relationship with God. What were they hindering? Oh, you got to get the right, you didn't have the right sacrifice. Oh, you didn't pay for the right money. So we'll change your money, a dime on a dollar, to have temple money, and then you can use the temple money to buy one of our sacrifices, which are good. Did that bring anybody closer to God? Can you imagine how aggravated you would be if you came into the temple to sacrifice and they said, what you brought, which was your prime animal you were going to sacrifice, that's not good enough. And then they, they, they took advantage of you from a money standpoint, and then they took advantage of you again to sell you some sorry sacrifice. Is somebody going to feel closer to God because of that? Or going to say, you know, God's a real cheat. They were presenting a barrier. What is, what is it that, that, Christ, that yeah, Christ is talking about here to say basically the culmination of all the prophets being killed is going to be laid against a generation? What does he mean? They killed prophet after prophet, basically shutting that word out and educating the people right. of getting closer to God. It's prophet after prophet after prophet, and the last prophet, the Son of God himself, they'll kill him too. Yep. The culmination of killing all the prophets in the past is going to culminate with you killing me. That's what he's saying. So, their response. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began, began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. So instead of... Remember when Peter gave his speech in Acts the people's heart changed. Their heart was so hardened, they were trying to figure out, well, how do we get rid of this guy? How do we destroy him? How do we turn out the light? So we're going to pick up in Lesson 9 next week. Thanks.